All right, crack open a tepid Genesee. Watch the pictures as they travel through your neighbor's Wi-Fi. It's the Rees Company. I'm Steve Rees, the bull of American broadcasting, alongside the great Chris Morganti. A lot of um, fun things to discuss uh, this week. We watched uh, part one of the Beatles' Get Back documentary, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I'm going to tell you about something we're going to do a little later. We're going to show you more, in fact, uh, the rest, basically, of uh, a 1986 CBS Sunday night movie called Who is Julia? Starring Mayor Winningham. And we're going to be discussing that. Um, And, of course, our uh, public service announcement that we always do uh, for the community good. Yes, we have to make clear our stance on the issue, uh, the focal issue of Who is Julia? Uh, Chris, how are you? I'm good. Um, I will say, I mean, we might as well just dive right into it because we talked about it last week on last week's show about how excited we were about this Beatles documentary. Yeah. And, uh, man, I can say, uh, despite my high expectations, it actually exceeded them. It's That's incredible. I, yeah. I was watching, uh, maybe about two minutes in, the Avon and I were watching this, and I said, this is amazing. I can't believe we're actually seeing something like this. Because uh, the, the footage is so, I don't know if it was restored or just well-preserved, but it's like it was shot yesterday. And all of this is, I guess, 52 years old. All this took place uh, 52, damn near 53 years ago. Right. So um, what uh, what, what do you get to watch when you see this? It's a completely immersive experience. You're in the studio with the Beatles as um, they record what becomes Let It Be. But at the outset, their goal was to write and rehearse an album, an entire album, in a fortnight's time and uh, debut those songs on a television special in front of a studio audience. And that plan evolves over the course of the documentary. Well, you say they were recording let it be which i is basically what happened but there's so many other songs in there there's there's parts of abbey road which of course hadn't been put out yet right uh, i think um, um polythene pam i heard i, I definitely heard she uh, came in through the bathroom window maxwell silver hammer yeah yeah something yeah and um su- surprisingly some of their later slumbers yep golden slumbers some of their later later solo work is in there in the very beginning like there's like there's nothing in the studio. There's just four chairs. They haven't brought in any of the mixing equipment. It's just a no one else was there. And you just see John with a guitar, and he's doing Jealous Guy. Yeah, but it's uh, called Road to Marrakesh. It, well, no, no, that was something oh, no. else. It was a uh, Child of Nature. Child of Nature. He's, right. I'm just a child of nature, and it's it's Jealous Guy. But he hadn't figured out those lyrics yet. Right. And uh, of course, that was part of I believe the Imagine album. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's so many great like that's. A couple minutes in. And that's another thing. They start doing uh, Give Me Some Truth, and John mentions that he and Paul had written that. Yeah. And that was a surprise to me, because Paul is not co-credited on that, on the Imagine album. Okay. And perhaps the song evolved to a point where um, Paul's contributions were diminished, but uh, that was not something I knew, that that was originally a song intended for the Beatles. All Things Must Pass, they rehearse early. Yes. Yeah, that, that as well. Um, and there's there's a scene where uh, Paul is singing "So Tired," which I believe is the name of that song. But you know what song? I'm yeah, I'm about. so tired. Yeah, yeah, which of course is a John song. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, it's just weird. Like, why is Paul singing this? Yeah, yeah? it's confusing. Uh, maybe uh, he just liked it. Maybe he had something to do with it. Um, that had, that had already come out though. One song, uh, another song oh, we wait, forgot to wait. mention. Was that part of the Revolver album? No, that was on um, that was on the White album, which Paul okay. refers to in the in I believe part one. 
he refers to the White Album as the Beatles, which is the proper title. And I wonder if at yeah. that time, yeah. that's still how people referred to that album. Yeah, and maybe. I wonder when the White Album became uh, the common way of titling it. Yeah, you know, I'd forgotten that. So that would, so Paul was just, uh, he was just warming up to that song. He must have liked it. Yeah, so tired. You yeah. know, I, I was thinking that they were, that was something they were planning on recording, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, it, that had it already, already been, been put out. So he, yeah, he was just warming up to that song. It was, but it was cool to see, you know, you know, because you, because they stopped performing live so early in their, in their career, they, they never got the chance to do things like uh, have, have sing each other's songs, you know, swap vocal parts and stuff like that. Right. Well, I mean, if they'd kept touring for another 20 years, you, you would have seen a lot of that. But, you know, you didn't get that because because they stopped. And, uh, and that's actually how the documentary starts. It, it starts off with um, In Spite of All the Danger, mm -hmm. which uh, was never released. It's, it was released on the anthology album years and years later. I believe that's the first song they recorded. It's right? the, it first the first song they original. Ever, yeah. Beatles the first song. original song they ever recorded. And they were teenagers. Right? I think it was in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's how this documentary starts. And then it takes you through, like, I would say maybe a 10-minute just kind of with uh, subtitles kind of or whatever whatever the term is. Titles. But, titles, yeah. It takes you through, like, you know, you know this, is where, this is how they got to this point where they're in the studio trying to record. They're not just trying to record an album. They have two weeks to record this album. And then perform it on a live TV show. Right. And the reason why they have two weeks is because Ringo has to make a movie. Yeah. Called The Magic Christian, which uh, he subsequently made. And I guess it did all right. But it's not something people remember as much as they remember these songs that are just... Yeah. They pull out of themselves. So somebody should have took Ringo aside and, and explained priorities. To him. <laughs> You're not going to be known as an actor, dude. Um but yeah, and then and then you would think that he, because of that, he would be maybe a little bit accommodating. But no, th there's a whole other thing where he refuses to leave England to perform this thing. They're trying to find a venue that would be, you know, something like the Colosseum, you know, a Roman Colosseum, not the Colosseum, but a Roman Colosseum. And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't want to leave England to shoot this. What the hell, Ringo? <laughs> also, on the other hand, what the hell, Michael Lindsay Hogg? The original right. director, who appears to be uh, the head of the Libyan Tourism Board. <laughs> what dog does he have in ha making the Beatles perform in Libya? Well, because it's Christmas time. So you, you need to go somewhere else to get a warm outdoor. If you're going to do it outdoors, you need to go somewhere else. Uh, you need to go to the Southern Hemisphere. Well, I think Libya is in the Northern Hemisphere. But... Well, then you can go to the Southern Hemisphere. You could go to, say, I don't know, Tahiti. Well, you could. Plenty of places you can go. On, on two weeks' notice? I don't, you know, you got to keep things kind of close. Well, they're the so Beatles. That, I think that's how Libya was the answer. There. Or no, maybe only the Beach Boys can accomplish that. Yeah, that was weird, huh? Yeah, you want to tell the folks? So at one, at one point, so like I said, when, when this first starts, there's absolutely nothing in the studio. It looks like an empty warehouse. And, uh, and, uh, and George is like, uh, hey, where's the console and the mixer and all that? And they're just like, oh, that, that'll be here. Don't worry about it. And he's like, I don't know, man. The sound's really bad. Like, imagine recording in an empty warehouse, you know? <laughs> like, the acoustics are terrible. But they're just, like, trying to figure all this out. And then, um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. So then uh, they're like, well, we're going to get eight-track mixers, right? And they're like, no, we're only going to get four-track mixers. And they're like, well, what, why? Like, why can't, why can't we get, like, the, Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys just had eight-track mixers. And, and, and I forget who, who says it. Who says it? Uh, 
John or Paul, they go, oh, yeah, but but they're American. <laughs> like, what the hell was going on? Is that a reference to help? When the doctor who um, kidnaps Ringo, he's talking about how everything, uh, about American technology? Maybe. I, I don't remember Everything that. he owns is American because everything American is high tech. I don't it, was that like that an part. inside reference to their own oeuvre? Or um, is it the doctor who kidnaps Ringo? I don't remember. I haven't seen that in a long time. I, I haven't either. I hope that was the case, because otherwise it's pretty depressing. The Roy Kinnear character in Help. Okay. It'd be sad that the Beatles were still getting, like, secondhand treatment <laughs> in, in favor of, like, American, you know, the Beach Boys are great, but well, still, I, they're not the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what that might have been. Um, Noel Gallagher, everybody knows. I'm a big fan of the Gallagher Brothers, also known as Oasis. Sure. Um, Noel Gallagher said something uh, a few years ago in an interview. He did Desert Island Discs. Uh, it's a show on BBC where um, people give five records that they would take to a desert island if they were going to be stranded there. Gotcha. And then do nothing with because you can't play them. I, I, I There's don't no know electricity. What, what the point. Yeah. So uh, he... Uh, he uh, Maybe played. some sort of uh, solar-powered type of thing would, would get the job done. Yeah, I, I'd prefer a boat. Well, sure. Yeah, I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna think about. Geez, which psychedelic furs? Right? No, I'll I'll have a boat of any kind. You know, an interesting point. Did you ever wonder why the professor on Gilligan's Island couldn't just fix that goddamn boat? All right, okay, all right. <laughs> why has no one thought of this before? Okay, so anyway, Noel Gallagher's on Desert Island Discs, and he picks his five songs. He picks one by uh, a Manchester act, uh, I think like a house act, called A Guy Called Gerald. Uh, he picks a Pink Floyd song, a David Bowie song, a Beatles song, and I think a U2 song. Okay. And um, the DJ says to him, well, what about American bands? Are you not interested in American bands? And he says, well, I like uh, The Doors and The Stooges, but apart from that, not really. And the interviewer says, well, what about The Beach Boys? And he says, no, the only reason why people like The Beach Boys is because Paul McCartney likes them. But <laughs> if you listen to them, all they are is barbershop quartet. And ever since he said that, that's how I've heard the. I can't, as they say, as the kids say, I can't unhear that. I will tell you, even not hearing that, I always thought that anyway. <laughs> uh, never been much of a fan. There's a couple songs I like, but otherwise, I don't get it. I, I, I don't, I don't really get yeah, it. Yeah, I like some of their stuff, but uh, I yeah. think Noel and uh, apparently you make an excellent point when it comes to that. But uh, not to take this away from the Beatles, uh, back to Let It Be, or I guess the making of Let It Be. Um, George writes, I me mine. He comes in and he's talking about it. Um, how he wrote this song after watching a made for TV movie called Europa. Mm. He was inspired by a ballroom scene where they were doing a waltz. Well, if it's anything like the made for TV movies we watch, this song is probably about rape. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my long held beliefs that, uh, this film shattered, I had the impression because it's what George actually said, that uh, I Me Mine, the lyrics of I Me Mine, referred not to rape, but how common those words show up in Eastern religious and philosophy texts. But there's no mention of this in the film as he excitedly tells Ringo about this song he, he wrote the night before. Yeah, this is actually my, my favorite scene in, the, in part one, um, because it's just, when it starts out, it's just George and Ringo and some other guy, maybe that hog guy, I don't know. But the three of them are standing around, and George is so excited about this new song he wrote, you know? And Ringo's like, yeah, man, all right. So Paul walks in, 
And George is like, hey, man, you want to hear my new song? Paul's like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and uh, George starts playing this, and Paul's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he goes, uh, is that grammatical? Uh, flowing more freer than wine. Shouldn't it be more freely than wine? And George is like, why, why are you nitpicking my song, man? And then he keeps playing it, and now John walks in, and John just totally shits on the whole thing. He's like, uh, all right, I have the exact quote here. He says, uh, Harrison's fisher wives and dwarves and hum- hunchbacks. Run along, son. We'll see you later. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't, that's like typical John, you know, what the hell is he even talking about? <laughs> but you kind of get it anyway. Right, right, right. Right? And then he goes, we're a rock and roll band, you know? <laughs> and George says, I don't care if you don't want it. I don't give a fuck. And John says, it can go in me musical, George. Do you have any idea what we play? <laughs> Interesting. And then um, John presents everybody with Across the Universe. Yeah. Which yeah. I wouldn't exactly call. Yeah. It's, it's you much, shook me all night long. It's much like I Me Mine. Right, 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 uh, right. Yeah, aesthetic. But uh, Yeah, I, I don't know uh, what the issue was there. Yeah, but it's funny. And I didn't, I didn't, obviously, I didn't do it justice. But it's, uh, it's very funny to see how, how dismissive Paul and John are of anything George wrote. And it, it leads really to the culmination of part one, um, which I don't know if we jump right to or if there's more, but we might as well just say part one ends with George walking out on the band. Right. And uh, it's briefly mentioned earlier in part one. Somebody asked, I think John, they're like, is this the first time someone has quit the band? He goes, no, Ringo did too. Um, and it's not really addressed. Maybe it is later. But uh, I, I kind of know that Ringo just, I, he probably was feeling like George was feeling. Like, why am I even here? You know? Um, so he quit the band at one point. And Do you know what point that was? I, it must have been briefly, I mean, not long before this, this film. Oh, all right. Yeah, like it wasn't in the early days, obviously. Because um, I was wondering, because um, uh, Paul brings up Jimmy Nickel a couple of times, the guy who filled in right. on one tour. Okay. Ringo. Okay. And about how terrible he was. He was distracted by the women. He, did you see that? <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. So no. he started, he, he would come in late on every song because he was just you know, just overwhelmed with Beatlemania. Yeah. And I mean, suddenly you find yourself, you're just a dude. Right. Suddenly you're portraying Ringo in the Beatles. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a very um, unique position. Um, yeah, but so they went to Ringo and they're like, look. But, but see, here's what I was wondering. If okay. that was when Ringo had quit. That he wasn't sick. I was wondering if it was. No, I that, no, I don't that think was it was fairly early. I'm pretty sure it was past their touring days when okay. they were a studio only band, and they went to Ringo's house and they're like, "Look, just come back. Like you don't even have to play the drums anymore. Just don't break up the band." Um, and then we saw a similar thing here where George leaves, and uh, I don't know if you want to do it or I want to do it, but this is my second favorite part, maybe my favorite part. Do it, Chris. Where uh, George leaves. And he says, uh, I'll see you boys at the clubs, which apparently they say was a reference to something somebody else had said. I didn't, I didn't know what they were talking about. I'm not familiar. Yeah. But anyway, so they're all sitting around, and they're like, oh, let's go to lunch. And you know, They go to lunch, they come back, and they're all just coursing around, just playing like nonsense. They, don't, they do not care at all that But George it left. seems to me, I saw a lot more <laughs> alcohol making the rounds yeah. after uh, George quit. Yeah. So I think that kind of fed into the fun atmosphere that ensued. Yeah. I think that they they were kind of just they were faced with this crisis. They didn't they didn't seem to treat it as one, but I think deep down they saw it as one. Perhaps. And yeah. uh, that was their way of dealing with it. Well, let's just get pissed, as they say, and have fun. 
Hopefully, George will come back tomorrow. Well, they had another way of dealing with it, which is uh, John says, if he's not back by Tuesday, we get Clapton. <laughs> which is my, my favorite line of part one. <laughs> like how just like whatever, dude, he's replaceable. You've got this other guy, Clapton. And then, like, they're just assuming that Clapton would be like, sure. Like, why wouldn't I be in the Beatles? <laughs> you know the story with Clapton and uh, and um, George, right? Oh, yeah. About, talking about uh, Patty Boyd. Patty Boyd. And, yeah. I, yeah. I figured that kind of adds a little. I don't was know. That the, before or after? Oh, that I was don't well know after. That, yeah, that was after. Yeah. yeah. So, that, oh, 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 that happened after? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. hadn't happened Like yet. in the 70s. Yeah. Like uh, 72, 72. Whenever Layla was written, that was the catalyst for all that. Yeah. I, that's why I thought Layla was 68. Oh, no. Layla was in the 70s. Okay. Well, forget me then. Let me just turn my mic off. But speaking of how long ago things were, do we need to do we need to detail that story? I, I, we're trying to draw. We in. Can. It's an it's an amazing story that well, if if you're into rock history. But let's I, see how much of it we remember. Now, uh, George Harrison <laughs> married a woman called Patty Boyd. Beautiful, stunning it's, blonde. She inspired uh, something. Okay. She inspired Layla. She inspired, uh, perhaps even wonderful tonight. Or right. How many? You could name any number of classic Eric Clapton and George Harrison songs that this woman inspired. In fact, she should be known as the tits that wrote the hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's a T-shirt. She um, uh, had an an admirer in Eric Clapton, shall we say, who was very good friends, if not best friends, with George Harrison, and um, Eric fell in love with her. And the song Layla and other assorted love songs. Every song on that album is about Patty Boyd. Now, they're not yet together. From what I understand, what um, drew them together is that um, Eric showed her a, a, some sort of a container with heroin in it and said to her, you know, if you, don't, if you don't go out with me, I'm going to take this heroin. And she said, well, okay, well, then that sounds, that's, you sound like a reasonable person to spend the next several years of my life with. <laughs> so she left George Harrison, and it was, uh, it caused a rift between them, but not for really? very long. <laughs> the really part is that they eventually all saw the funny side. Yeah. And everything was fine. Yeah, it's weird, man. And eventually Eric and Patty divorced and whatever. And then Cheryl Crow ends up. I, I don't even. I, <laughs> Can you I don't imagine know how quickly you want to. She's married to a guy, Rod, West, uh, Rod Weston. Can you imagine him, like, you know, around the parties? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so what do you do, Rod? Uh, I'm a trash man. <laughs> you know, I'm just a grease monkey. <laughs> just a grease monkey. <laughs> See, we're not even going to watch that part of the next motion picture. <laughs> Maybe It'll, we should. Maybe it, we should go back. Oh, a we definitely got to watch that part. That, scene that, that was just in there. We just didn't realize that, but it was just in there. We just saw that. Oh, okay. All right, all right. All right. Just like the 11 songs that were named after or, or inspired by Patty Boyd. Inspired by. Oh, now, I, um, I don't want to get too inside, but I'm also a big Donovan fan. And he was dating um, when they all went to uh, India, which is also in a later episode of uh, Get Back. There's uh, footage that Paul and John shot while they were visiting with the Maharishi. That's not part one? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's later. But because we're talking about Patty Boyd, mm -hmm. um, she had a sister, perhaps still does, called Jennifer, who was with Donovan. Oh, okay. And his song, Jennifer Juniper, is about Jennifer Boyd. Wow. So it's a very influential set of related body parts. Yeah, and uh, Culture Club had a song about oil can Boyd. All right. 
Well, All now right. we're getting a little far. Off. I don't know if that was a joke or what that was. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine Culture Club being familiar with him. Yeah, how would they know who he is? <laughs> Terrible joke that will be edited out of the show. <laughs> no, I think it should no, stay. No, that's got to stay. In. I think it should be in the <laughs> intro. I think that's the first thing anybody should see when they dial this up. I didn't think you guys were going to even know who that was. Oh, yeah, he was a pitcher for the Red Sox in yeah. uh, the 80s. Correct? Oh, I thought he was part of the big red machine. No, he was later. <laughs> he might have been. I, I, I'm pretty sure he was. I associated him with the uh, Red Sox in the '80s, but uh, yeah. I, I could be wrong. Um, so talking of um, how long ago this was shot and how great it looks. Now uh, to do kind of a corollary here. In the time this footage was shot, it would be like if the Beatles in this were somehow watching footage of that quality that was recorded in 1917. Yeah. It's weird how long ago this was. Yeah. This is before any of us were born. Yeah. Well, all the Beatles were. I mean, the whole Beatles thing was before any of us. Yeah, everything. I mean, they broke up at at least a decade before I was born. And they were the most, they were the most, oh, shit. How How do I put this? They sold more records in the 2000s than any other band. Is that true? It's it's either the I, I think I'm referring to the decade of the 2000s like 2000 to 2010 right. right yeah they outsold every other band it's amazing the longevity and just how I mean my 11 year old daughter loves them you know well she should and, and all kids should yeah everyone should another thing that surprised me is the song get back it started out as a protest song against the beliefs of Enoch Powell who was a, a diverse figure in British politics he was very anti-immigration sort of the Nigel Farage of his time. Um, but the protest angle gets abandoned. And the song evolves into a tune about, I guess, trans people smoking weed. Gee, Chris, I wonder what, if anything, made Paul suddenly anti-immigration. Mm. Specifically from the island of Japan, maybe. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it did not start as a protest song. It started off as, and this, is, this was amazing to me, like they're all just sitting around, like, man, we only got like ten days, and we got to do a freaking concert. We got we got nothing, and Paul is just like blah 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 blah, blah. you know, just tuning around on his guitar. And within two minutes, he has the skeleton of Get Back. Mm. Like it seemingly comes from absolutely nowhere. He like within two minutes, he has the basis of it. You know, not the lyrics, but you know, and uh, it's just amazing. He does this like. Two more times, just in this part. I think one of the other ones was, uh, I have it here somewhere, uh, The Long and Winding Road. Same thing. He's just tooling around. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, maybe he had written that the night before. But, man, that's not the way it comes across at all. But it also seems still, like he's creating it in the moment. But still, even if he had written it the night before, it's still very impressive. Yeah. Um it's impressive just to write that song. but uh, In fact, I think the notes you sent me, uh, the way you phrased it is he pulled that song out of his ass. Yeah, and that and The Long and Winding Road, they just seem to be, because they were, it's, he's so under pressure, like, they get down to, like, it's a week to go when George quits. And um, they really have almost nothing. They don't know where the show's going to take place um, because Ringo won't fly out of England and George doesn't want to record in a studio that they're, in now while this is filming because he thinks the acoustics suck which obviously you could fix you know you got a television crew in there they're gonna whatever yeah but they have only two weeks if if there's an audio issue that takes about i think we know i think we know chris it takes about six months it's a solid six months yeah yeah 
Get your microphone. They didn't have that kind of time. <laughs> Did they have two seasons? You know what? You know, I, I remember there's one scene where John's complaining about uh, the gain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> pretty interesting because I've watched this entire documentary. I've watched all three episodes. I understand, Chris, you have not. And I can tell you at no point with all the audio issues they have using two different studios, not one person ever mentions gain. Yeah. Gain is uh Hamboy's go to excuse for why things aren't working properly. I, I actually think Paul does mention gain. <laughs> I, I think he does. But it might have been for the same reason to cover up that he screwed something up royally. Dugan's the one who introduced the word gain in here. <laughs> well, it's easy to blame people when they're not here, so let's go with that. Oh man. Um what what were we talking about just before we got onto the onto that? Uh Paul's prolificness. Yes, and um, like right after he does the long and winding road, which I said seems to come just like get back out of completely nowhere, mm. he launches into golden slumbers and carry that weight, which we'd said before they didn't even make it onto what they were doing this album. It made it onto Abbey Road, which actually came out before this album. You know, it's all right. Right. They were basically recording two albums. You know, that were going on here. Um, but man, it's such a powerful scene. I keep saying this is my favorite scene. Now I'm on my my third favorite scene. But um, like while he's doing these three songs, like Ringo's just sitting next to him, and like he's like, even Ringo's kind of like in awe. Like, where is all this coming from, man? Like, and it's just Paul just being like, I only got seven days. No one else is writing anything, you know. I got I got to get to work here. And uh, George shows up in the middle of all this with uh, a Wendy's breakfast baconator, <laughs> being like, Yeah, this is a rough night, you know. Like, and. Uh, and Linda, Linda is shooting photos. Linda, who would later become Linda McCartney, Linda Eastman, I guess she was at the time. Yeah. But uh, she's shooting photos, and I swear, at one point when she pulls the camera away, she wipes a tear out of her eyes. She could have just been wiping her eye, but she definitely made that motion. And it's like, it really was like, if you were his girlfriend, you probably would have been drawn to tears by just watching this guy. This fucking, it's watch. You're watching a genius at work, right, you know? Right. Um. It, it, yeah. Oh, and uh, carry that weight which I mentioned was one of these three songs, that was like a, like a bar sing-along, like a pub song originally. Like a common uh, public domain sort of thing? Yeah. But wasn't... Uh, well, no, no, not public domain, but just like the spirit of it was like, you know, you would be in a bar and we're all be, ah, da, 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 you know, like that kind of thing originally. Oh, so that's the spirit in which it was written. Yeah. Not, 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 yeah. But uh, was Golden Slumbers not a lullaby, lullaby? Maybe. I mean, that would make sense given the name. I but. think that was traditional. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have a whole other, like, I don't know. Well, Chris, knock yourself out. I got a lot of notes. Like, I could just run through, like, weird observations that I made. But, you know, if we have an actual conversation, that'd be better. But well, um, I can just throw these out. Did, please, you, did uh, you notice the weird Buddhist guy at the beginning? Uh, there were two. Yeah. Two, um, and I don't think they were Buddhists. They were Hare Krishnas. Oh, yeah, you're right. Who, I guess right. some way tangentially or perhaps um, hands-on. George was involved with in some way, but it, he, he didn't get the Mohawk, so I'm not sure how committed he was. Right. But uh, yeah, those were, um, there were two of them who showed up just randomly. And, so, the, and the caption just said, friends of George's. Friends of George's. <laughs> or friends of George, I guess. Yeah. More grammatical. It is. Uh, it's not grammatical. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of odd when you see this. Um, you see how um, Yoko wasn't the only non-Beatle in the studio. Right. 
Linda was there. Of course. Linda was there. Um, the various Hare Krishnas. <laughs> yeah, and and while while these while they're showing these Hare Krishna guys, George goes, "Oh, you're recording our conversations." Like he didn't even realize. Like he thought they were just there to like shoot music videos. I think like he didn't realize up until that point that this was going to be a documentary. Right, I, right, I don't right. know what I don't know where George's head was in any of this. <laughs> I know you're like a George fan because you'd mentioned on the last show that you thought he had the most successful solo career. Well, I thought he had the most solid solo career. I mean, I disagree on that, but it's not worth arguing over. But I, if, when I'm watching this, George almost comes off like the villain in, in this whole thing. Like, I really don't know what he was thinking at any part of this. Well, don't you think after years of frustration of not being recognized as being a viable songwriter, a contributor to the He was not a viable songwriter, though. From, he only he became that. He basically studied under the two greatest songwriters of the, of the time. And he learned, and by that point, right. he was on a par with them, in my opinion. Well, or close, but he was definitely nowhere near that point. Close enough for them to not laugh at his contributions. Well, if you look at his contributions in the early albums, and he was nowhere, you know, you could see why John and Paul wouldn't think he was on their level. It would have taken a few more years of, you know, him writing hits before they would start to recognize him as being on their level. Now, I think probably the most... Um, and that's nothing to be, like, even if you're like, I'm not getting the recognition... Like, you're, you're part of the freaking Beatles. Like, how much more recognition do you need? You know? I, I, I feel like George came across as very unreasonable in this whole thing. Well, I think That's my if you know you can play in that league and you're not having the opportunity, you're not having the at-bats, then it's going to frustrate you. But is he even really that great of a guitarist when they're just ready to drop him for Clapton at the drop of a hat? Like, no one ever mentions George Harrison as being one of the great guitarists of all time. I think one of the most influential guitarists, for sure. You think? He doesn't have the chops that um, Clapton had, but Clapton, as I said on the last show, had no feeling. Yeah. He plays like an autistic. This is where we venture into territory where I don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm uh, making shit up as I go along. So I will, I will defer to you on this. Well, the most um, famous part of the original version of this, which was called uh, Let It Be, there was a documentary that they used. Um, here's what happened. Uh, these original, um, this Michael Lindsay Hogg character, he had he shot sixty hours of footage of the Beatles recording this uh, music. Um, he took, I guess, an hour of that and turned it into basically Paul and George arguing. Now, well, I'm sorry, Steve. I got distracted. What, this there was a release of Let It Be. I thought it was never released. Oh no, it, it was released, but. Um, the footage was turned into uh, basically uh, the crux of the film was just the Beatles rehearsing and then Paul and George arguing. Now, we saw the scene. That's the most famous scene in the original. Yeah. Well, that's where George is like, I'll play whatever you want me to play. Yes. Oh, actually, I think I wrote the uh, I think I wrote the actual dialogue down here. Yeah. So um, Paul says, I'm scared of being the boss and I had been for a couple of years. Now, they go into this, too, because, of course, their manager, Brian Epstein, had died right. a year or two before, right after Sergeant Pepper, somewhere around there. And at that point, they, they just always did what he told them to do. And at that point... And they trusted his judgment, and he didn't fail them. Yeah, I would say he did well. Uh, he made him the most famous group in, in the world. Um, but at that point, they were just kind of like floundering, and, uh, and Paul decided, like, I don't want this... Uh, I don't want this band to break up, you know. So he kind of took the lead on things. 
And at one point, John says, we've all been in the doldrums since Mr. Epstein passed away. It's discipline we lack. So Paul tried to give him that discipline, but they didn't want to hear it. You know, you don't want to hear it from your, your peer. You know, even though Epstein was only a few years older than them, he was still their manager. And he wasn't part of the band, so he was like, okay, you be the boss. You don't want your, your friend to be your boss. That's never a good situation. Right, right, right. So, so Paul's saying, I'm scared of being the boss, you know, and I have been for years now. And, and John, he doesn't want to yell at George on camera. And John says, forget about candid camera. Again, that's how John speaks, you know. <laughs> it's, it's all in metaphors and illusions and everything. Bit of a carrot. Yeah. And Paul says, I never get any support, so I just say, fuck it. And George says, and this is the part you're referring to, the famous part. George says, I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all if it will please you. And I don't think you really know what that one is. And what that last line meant is Paul's trying to tell him how to play the song, and George is saying, I, I don't think you have it figured out yet. I'm trying to help you figure it out. You know, like they're having a legitimate disagreement, much as I just, you know, said George is being unreasonable. Here, I, I see his side. Oh, here. There, there we go. Yeah. But um, what I remember, and I haven't rewatched the original since uh, watching this, but I don't remember that discussion being portrayed that fully in the original. As I remember it, because I remember uh, George saying, well, I'll play what you want me to play or I won't play at all. Yeah. I remember that. I don't remember Paul talking about the pressures of being the boss and how he doesn't really want to. I don't think it made it in. No. And so this... In many ways, this documentary changes history as we know it, but that is one of them. I mean, Paul wasn't necessarily being an aggressor or an oppressor. He was just trying to figure out where the band was at that time. And, um, yeah, man, I mean, there's really another thing that, that kind of that narrative that's been out there for, for so long until this film is that John and Paul were um, drifting apart. And this totally dispels that. You can see so many moments. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, you can see so many moments where they're clearly like completely in tune with each other. Um, just a couple of, uh, let me see, I have it in here somewhere. Uh, right, after, uh, right after George leaves, uh, there's a scene where you think that John and Paul are arguing, and then you realize they're just like, doing like a skit for the camera. <laughs> uh, Paul says to John, have you written anything else? We're going to be faced with a crisis. And John says, when I'm up against the wall, Paul, you'll find I'm at my best. Which, how the hell did that song, how did that not make it to a song lyric? But, um, <laughs> but, but it seems like there are, like the, that dialogue doesn't sound like an argument, but the, in the context it does, and you realize it's just for show. And, and then like right after that, they're playing face to face. Like, you know. They're standing two feet apart. And they said, I've seen from other things that that's originally when they first started writing songs, that's how they did it. They would just stand two feet apart playing for hours. And that's how they came up with all their first songs. You know why? No. The Everly Brothers. Oh, that's how they did it too? Yeah, they, they would stand that way when they performed. And the, the Beatles emulated that. Um, but there's a lot of other moments where you just see you know, it's nothing that was said. It's just you see the looks between John and Paul, right. and you realize they were they were still like best friends. You know, they weren't. The, there's no point where you see John annoyed at Yoko. 
He may have been. He probably was. <laughs> but it's never overt. Oh, oh, I don't think John actually wanted Yoko there. I think he just allowed it because he knew it would annoy other people. Yeah, he did like to get a rise out of right. people. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't remember it that well. Did they ever rehearse Don't Let Me Down? Um, yes. They rehearsed it like 40 fucking times. Oh, okay. I don't think there's a more rehearsed song in the history of music. And the lyrics keep changing. Yes. And uh, they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And this is, uh, I, as I said, I watched this with the A-bomb. And she said, can someone just tell them what the lyrics are? <laughs> Who doesn't know this song? Well, but put a on a radio. It'll be on in fifteen minutes. But a guy does. It's a guy named Glenn. Who I don't. I don't know who Glenn is. Glenn Johns was the the. Uh, I guess he was the engineer. I thought he was the producer, but I guess Phil Spector ended up being the producer. But um, yeah, he was one of the producers. I mean, some yeah. Uh, as the hands-on guy in the studio, he was very much the producer. He's the guy who says to him, "Oh, he says you sing the first line, you two sing the second line." And then the three of you sing the third line, and once they do that, it's uh, you're you're like, oh, that's that's don't let me don't don't let me down. <laughs> like it becomes the song. Like before that, it was just like, you know, they're just kind of meandering, and right. there's no no, it's not the song that that we all know. But uh, yeah, that guy should probably get a writing credit because they were lost before that. Before he said it. he just figured it out, you know. I don't know how much longer we want to go on. Mm -hmm. I, I have like a couple, like two more observations. Well, yeah, just please, make. let's hear them. Um, when you listen to what the album that these sessions eventually became, we said it's Abbey Road and, jeez, uh, uh, I'm sorry. And Let It Be. Let It Be. Um, when you listen to Let It Be, there's a song that really stands out as unique on there. And, of course, I'm talking about One After 909. Yeah. Because it's, it sounds like 1964 Beatles or earlier. And um, I, I always wondered whether or not it was just a song that they never got around to recording or if they intentionally decided, hey, what if we did a song back like how we used to do it? Well, it turns out it's the former. Right. Um, because, and it says, like, because they only had two weeks, they're like, man, do we have any old stuff we can, we can trot out there and try and make work? And they do, like, it shows them trying these different songs, but apparently this is the only one where they're like, yeah, this will work. And, uh, and John says, I wrote that when I was 15. 15! <laughs> and it's such a great, it's such a good song, man. And it was released um, on one of the anthology records. The original is actually, they did record it in the early 60s. Yeah, okay. So uh, there is a version released. of that out there, yeah. And, and, John, and like, after that, John's like explaining lyrics. He's like, you know, you're waiting for a girl on the train and they're all like laughing like you know those good those the good old days are still like you know so like you know funny to them and stuff i don't i don't know what i'm saying right and also <laughs> there's so little time i mean think about uh i guess uh 6 years ago yeah not that long ago yeah well let's not think about six sorry chris no no uh, I, I see what you're saying yeah it's a yeah. i mean it, it goes by um pretty quickly and it, Imagine how many changes came. Okay, Chris, let's stop talking that, that, about that. That's this. what makes the Beatles such a great story is, you know, it, it, it basically their story encompasses the entire six the decade of the 60s. Right. And they go from, you know, a rockabilly, you know, slick your hair back and wear leather jackets band to what they became. To historical figures. Yeah, it, it's so remarkable. There's nothing else like that story. And, um, well, one, just one more observation. It's not yeah, even that, it's not even that 
poignant, but uh, Oblidi, Oblada, life goes on, you know? Yeah. The original lyric. Thanks for singing it that way, because we won't get demonetized for that. <laughs> yeah, because I totally butchered it. Um, but Oblida was originally, oh my God. That was, oh my God. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. It's pretty cool. I don't know why, I don't know why they changed it, but whatever. I'm not going to second second guess Paul McCartney. Yeah, please. In his so. choice of lyrics. <laughs> so, um, you definitely enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. Now, I have you, watched you, the rest. I will watch um, the, the rest again, if that's okay. And um, next week, uh, we'll encapsulate and comment on part two, the things that surprised us, the things we enjoyed. And uh, you can join us, too, if you haven't seen it yet and you like the Beatles, and who doesn't? Being a Beatles fan is like being, um, it, it, you may as well say Earthling, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, definitely check it out if you have access to um, Disney+. Plus. Shall we do this? Yeah. You know, it's odd that uh, I've had a cold all week, and uh, my voice is kind of like, you know, on the fritz. And I, I think I've talked more than any other show we've done in the last decade <laughs> on this show. Are you feeling it's it? It's bad timing. Yeah, I'm starting to feel it, man. But this is more your segment anyway. I don't have... I watched this movie, and it was, you know, I, I don't know. Let's just get into it. I'm pretty sure we had this exact exchange last week. Really? Yes. Why well, I didn't have a cold last week. You're talking that? about talking more than... I, I'm pretty sure that was in the last show. It I can't I, be. I, I didn't be have a cold last wrong. week. Maybe I dreamed about this show in advance. Who knows? Yeah. Well, last week... We began discussing a 1986 CBS Sunday night movie called Who is Julia? It stars Mare Winningham, fresh off her breakthrough role in St. Elmo's Fire, which was basically a song with a film wrapped around it, Chris. Right. We watched an early scene last time. Um, the initiating incident in which Mary Frances, played by Winningham, has an aneurysm while watching her son, Carrot, wander into the street, and nearly get creamed by a cement mixer. He's saved by Julia, a glamour model who rushes to push him out of the truck's path. She's successful in that pursuit, Julia is, but is instead herself bowled over by the vehicle and suffers near-fatal injuries. Now, Chris, you have a correction to make about a statement you made regarding that scene? Yeah, um, we were, I was watching it on a monitor far away last week, and it did not appear to me that she actually pushed the child out of the way. But it, uh, upon watching this film in the intervening week, I see that she does push him out of the way. And then uh, I see how the kid ended up in a crowd because she pushed him into the crowd. So I was, uh, as we say, talking out my ass last <laughs> week. <laughs> well, uh, both Mary Frances, uh, Mayor Winningham, and Julia, the model, are rushed to some circus of a hospital side by side. Now, Here's what the doctors have on their hands. Plain old Mary Frances with a dead brain but a functioning body. Is she, when you say plain, she's plain looking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, they have a glamour model Julia with a trauma-free brain but a lifeless body. Because it was bisected by a cement truck. Right. So uh, That's actually the term they used in the movie. She was nearly bisected. <laughs> The, the, the uh, relieving term is uh, nearly. You don't want to be yeah. bisected. You want to be nearly bisected. If you have a choice between the two, I I'd think go with nearly bisected. I'd go with bisected because <laughs> I don't want the life that subsequently <laughs> plays out here. So this team of doctors, they meet with Mike from Breaking Bad. 
He's Mary Francis's husband, and um, they have a proposition for him. <laughs> Even they don't know what to say when he says that. <laughs> that that statement is greeted by complete silence from the other two guys in the room. We've never heard anybody refer to themselves that no, way. No one calls themselves a grease monkey. <laughs> Even people who work at a grease monkey will say, "Yeah, I work at the lube shop." <sighs> you want to continue? All right, you can stop it there. So he, he, at that point, he realizes that this woman saved his child's life, and therefore he's willing to let her brain be put into his wife's body. Yes. And um, is it just me, or did that cop come off a little too casual with his, uh, "Eh, so your wife is dead? (laughs) (laughs) That seemed a little inauthentic (laughs) acting there to me, but I don't know. I don't know how you would play it. They don't get top tier uh, acts in these things. Now, uh, as you can imagine, um, can we? Can uh, this is the next uh, clip? Okay. Well, um, when they got the call, no, 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 it's fine. When they got the call that um, okay, you can do this operation. The main surgeon, Doctor Matthews, he had a perverse look in, of glee in his eyes, like he was really excited. Yeah, this whole hospital is like the uh, Victor Frankenstein Memorial Hospital. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, naturally, he wastes no time cutting into these gals. (laughs) We're treated to a montage of both the surgery and uh, Julia's romantic memories of her relationship with her husband. Jim? Pause. 
If he's not back in 10 minutes, we get Conan. No, I want that line in the show. <laughs> it's in reference to um, John saying, we got Clapton? Never mind. Uh, let's, uh, shall we continue? Oh, my God, it's still on. Why are we watching all this? You don't want to see this, Chris? No, I fast-forwarded through this in my original watch of it. I want to, I want to see a... Why, why, are we, why, is, why is you not pausing it? <laughs> okay. Why would we want to watch a woman get her head shaved and sawed in half? What possible use is there to that? Okay, well, I, I guess we, we go to the next one. But uh, can I want to... Can I just uh, comment yeah. for one second? Since you hate this scene so much, do I have permission to um, add something to it? Do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you right now. <laughs> do, do whatever you want. Okay. I'm sure whatever it is would improve it in Chris's mind. Yes. Because he's not a fan of the scene. I just want to make sure I have your approval. I hope it's like Bugs Bunny sawing into her head. <laughs> if you, I, I believe that might exceed your capabilities. No, no, no disrespect. I'm just saying. But uh, that would be funny. Now, uh. Julia's husband, Don, he's late to the scene. Don is a photographer who's been on location in Mexico. Now, now just so, because this is confusing as hell. Okay. He is the husband of the woman whose brain survived. Yes. The model. And her brain, the model's brain, will now be transported, or what's the term? Donated or transplanted. Transplanted. And, there you go. But see, Chris, Into the body of a much less attractive That's woman. why I showed that scene. So you get a sense of uh, who the model is and who her husband is. Right. But I explained it in five seconds where, as opposed to having to watch a woman get her head shaved and sawed in half. I, it's not often I question your judgment, Look, Steve. Look, I, I can but, say what uh, you want me to say <laughs> or not say anything at all. But I don't think you know what that is, Chris. I have no idea what you're talking about. <sighs> well, anyway, uh, Julia's husband, Don, he's late to the scene. Don is a photographer, and as I just said, he's been on location in Mexico. Now, because Julia was carrying an organ donor card, they didn't need his permission to perform the transplant, which is how it's pronounced. <laughs> I'm kidding, Chris. Relax. <laughs> Here's how Don takes that the That was news. a genuine laugh. Hey, can we pause it? So this is kind of apropos, but uh, I need to point out that this man, this takes place in Los Angeles, and this man just came back from a photo shoot in Acapulco, Mexico. Yeah. At what point did he decide that that sweater <laughs> was the appropriate attire? Yeah. 
That's all. I, that's all. You can go. <laughs> Do you not think this was shot in uh, California? Do you I'm, think this is one of those Vancouver shoots? To I, don't, I, don't money? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was Christmas. I don't know how. I don't know how cold it gets in Los Angeles at Christmas. Uh, but, it uh, might. It might be quasi sweater weather. You uh, live out there, know. Jim. Is that uh, the case? It's not that cold, but you can wear. It. Yeah. If you're flying in from Acapulco, I'm thinking you're wearing a T-shirt. But <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> from Acapulco to L.A. Yeah. Okay. All right, is that a good place yeah, to that, stop? Yeah, that's a great place to stop. Yeah. No, I, I just I didn't want it to go on too long. Like, oh, okay. At, no, that's at a at perfect point, place to stop. At a certain point, Steve, we're just watching television. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he says, uh, that Dr. Matthews tells Don that he can see his uh, new wife tomorrow. <laughs> and he says, uh, uh, actually, he doesn't say anything yet. Um, so here's, here's his attitude, I'm sure. All right, I'll check her out tomorrow. But uh, you got any photos? <laughs> There's no way AJ Simon over here doesn't have questions about things like maybe age, <laughs> body type, possibly even race. Now, I'm not even saying he wanted uh, his wife to remain white. He might have some sort of Asian thing that's gone unexplored right. that he might have his hopes up for. Could I, be a godsend. All I'm saying is, in real life, the man would have some questions. Yeah, I didn't even think about the age issue, but yeah, this could have been like an elder. This could have been like an Alzheimer's patient <laughs> <laughs> whose brain went, but the body. Oh, well, she still had a solid body for a seventy-year-old. I haven't seen, and I'm just hoping that um, he just is completely unattracted to her and freaks out. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, I will say this: uh, Don is a real sport. It does take some adjustment, but uh, by the time Julia is conscious, he's coming to accept that although she doesn't look like the woman he's married, um, she is indeed that very woman. Now, Julia, on the other hand, becomes not best pleased with her new visage. She starts ramming her head against a, a wall mirror in her hospital room. Dr. Matthews rushes in. She begs him to let her die. Eventually, she calms down, and they have this really bizarre chat. This is uh, or this is what we're gonna see now.
Do we get the point on this too? How how long are we going here? Yeah, all right. We don't have to. We don't have to <laughs> keep going. Yeah, I just don't want the clips to be too long. Okay. Man. Well, uh, how it resolves is Julia becomes uh, on board with her new um, body. Okay. Yeah. She becomes comfortable with it because of Dr. Matthews's compliments. He tells her. He goes on to say, her eyes are the most beautiful eyes he's ever seen. Yeah. Which I mean, yeah. He's he's that's flattery. <laughs> they're they're average, I would say. <laughs> you're, you're not a fan of. Uh, I mean, you're not a fan of the new Julia. I, I, it's no problem. It's just not. <laughs> how do I look? All right. <laughs> <laughs> On par. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, she feels comfortable. She feels uh, somewhat confident, and uh, it's time for her to go home. I'd like us uh, to check out uh, her bizarre exit from the hospital. <laughs> uh, I think you just had it right before there. That, that scene there. Here it there is. There we go. Oh. Smooch. Oh, peck on the cheek. Handshake. Double handshake. Okay, so her husband is trying to wheel her out of the hospital, take her home, back to their new life so they can adjust uh, to uh, their hopefully long life together with all the changes that it now entails. But she just can't say goodbye to the staff or wave, you know, give them one of these. No. She has to stop to Richard Everyone's Dawson and right in front of Don. Who's Don? Her husband. Oh, okay. Well, you figure she's lived there. Uh, we skipped around, but she's lived there for months, months almost months. almost a year at this point. Right. So, you know. So she gets to make out with all the... Uh, she Because, she, see, you sold this as she's making out with everyone as she walks out the hospital. But it was only, only one guy kissed her on the lips. I think it's more on him than her. There were kisses exchanged that uh, I think were inappropriate. Yeah. Well, regardless, I'm starting to notice two recurring tropes okay. made for TV movies. One, rape. <laughs> We'll, we'll get there in a moment. Oh, Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the other is this. The perfectly honorable, decent, loving husband whose wife unreasonably turns on him. Yeah. He can't be any more supportive, can't do enough for her. Right. But somehow, he's the bad guy and for a really trivial reason. Yeah. So, Julia goes in to talk to one of the top physicians at Diploma Mill General where she had the surgery. You mean Victor, uh, the, the what? The what? What was it? What was what? The name of the hospital? A Diploma Mill General. It was a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's oh, what I was oh, asking. Okay. Well. <laughs> and uh, here's her complaint about Don.
push my lonely was all over me. And my tigers. That he could take a strange woman in her old rags and make love to her using the same words and the same touches that he used to use with me. All right, can we can we just pause, please? Does she not? This guy's trying to make lemons out of lemonade, for Christ's sake. He used to date a supermodel. <laughs> and you're going to complain about that? Come on. He's doing his best. He's gone to the, to the ends of the earth to make this work. Not good enough. Can we hear a little more of this, Jim? All right, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you discuss it with him? No. Just go around complaining to everyone who's ever done a Pathmark commercial that your husband is attracted to your brain and not just your body. What a pig this cat is. Well, it turns out there's more at work here. Can we go to one hour, 23 minutes, Jim? Well, that's a rare. Sometimes, sometimes, Jim. <laughs> I am capable. <laughs> All right. Wait, no. What is this though? What? Well, what's? Oh, okay. Never. Never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. The hot doctor. <laughs> now, where do I know this guy from? He looks so familiar. I don't know. I'm sure he's been in a million things. Okay, pause. He stops the elevator. I know what you're thinking. Here's that other trope. Lay it on me? No, the one you suggested earlier. Oh, right. Oh. Yeah. But no, we're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, go on. Wait, hold on, hold on. I, I didn't pick up on this the first time. Who does he not trust? He's saying it's not you I don't trust. What is he talking about here? Actually, I, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, yeah, where's she going with this? Where is she going or where is he going? I don't know what he meant by that. It's oh. not you I don't trust. I, I oh, like, I know what it is. Okay. I know what it is. Will He's we saying see? he doesn't trust himself. Oh. Okay. Because, um, well, you'll, yeah. you'll see this play out shortly. One time I'm not scared is when I'm with you. Outside of here, I don't know who Julia is. What is Gordon say about this? He talks about brain stem injury, but I know what it is. I lost control over my life. The surgery without my permission. People telling me what to do. 
All right, that's enough. Yeah. It's it's almost like a, to draw a parallel, like a Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, and, and that's a, a, a subsequent point the doctor makes, that uh, because he was a caretaker, he right. relies on her, and therefore she thinks she's fallen in love with him. But she needs to be independent. And he's very honorable in his response to this. Um, so Julie goes to visit her husband, Don, at work after this. He's shooting a spread with Lonnie, a model who is close friends with Julie. Um, Lonnie doesn't recognize Julie at first because, in Lonnie's defense, Julie suddenly looks like a Peanuts character <laughs> while singing. <laughs> and Lonnie is clearly taken aback by uh, Julie's appearance, which leads to this following scene. Is she going to a? Is she joining a Fleetwood Mac cover band? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> this is my Stevie Nicks getup. What? What's going on? Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, want her wearing his. He doesn't want her wearing her former clothing. Right. Yeah. Well, that girl was, and she was much taller. Maybe she wasn't. I don't know. It seemed like she was taller. Well, they, they had a different build, I'm sure. Right. And that's why um, I, I think she may have already described what she has to have done to this outfit to make it fit again. Oh. But it's her old clothes. There's nothing sick about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good place, right? Yeah, that's a great place. Yeah. Chris? I just feel like there should be a lot more empathy on both sides of the, uh, you know. You've been through something that apparently has, this is the first time in history that this has occurred. <laughs> right. You don't think that maybe there'd be some issues that maybe you should be a little more empathetic and sympathetic to the other person's uh, whatever they're going through. Well, he tried, um, much more so than we've covered here. Uh, while Julia's brain was in the hospital, Don removed all pictures um, 
of her yeah. from the mantle. You, you saw that when you watched it. Yeah. He also, we learned, put all of her clothes in the garage. Right. Makes it less of a reminder to her and to him that she's no longer in the same body. I would think that would be in an attempt to help heal her psychologically. And so that neither of them would be tempted to compare the two, how she looks now versus how she looked then. Yeah, like if this happened to me and uh, – or no, like if uh, this happened to Tom Brady and he ended up in my body, you would not, you would not want him coming home. <laughs> and uh, Wait, no, I think I got this mixed up, but I think you got the general idea. <laughs> Tom Brady would not uh, – wait – no, how, does this, how would this work? I would not wanting to be seeing the pictures of Tom Brady and being like, oh, that's how, that's what you're expecting me to look like. How do you think Giselle's going to feel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I was getting at. I got here early. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, subsequent to this, uh, Julia walks out. Even though we saw Don leave, Julia somehow walks out. And it should be noted that since she returned home, a suspicious vehicle appears uh, to be scouting the house she lives in. With yes, a, a suspicious yet very well-maintained vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> so this probably, um, for Julia, wouldn't be a good time to make a late-night trip to the landfill to throw <laughs> away all her old clothes and her four photographs. But she's a woman in a TV movie which makes her twice as likely to make horrible decisions without anyone standing in her way. So let's see what it occurs. Pause. I forgot to point this out. After uh, she threw her photographs, uh, four photographs, She's a model. She only has four photographs. All right. <laughs> well, it was the I, 80s. I, I think Patch in Kate's Secret had more than four <laughs> photographs of herself <laughs> in her rehab uh, bedroom. But um, she throws away the photographs and her old clothes in the landfill, which, uh, uh, by the way, I guess there might have been a trash, stri uh, trash strike at the time. Why is that? Well, she could just put these things out on the curb. Presumably, and they'd be picked up uh, by <laughs> folks. Yeah, it's not often you have to drive to the landfill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to personally <laughs> deposit your trash. The, the pictures didn't have Freon in them. <laughs> Maybe she had the body of uh, her former body was also lying around. <laughs> So uh, as she's trying to pull out, uh, her car gets stuck in the dirt. I forgot to mention that part. But uh, luckily, someone is there to help. And uh, we've just seen the beginning of this exchange. Yeah, we can't tell who that is. Man, this is going to be like 10 minutes if we let this whole thing play out. Not the whole thing, just uh, all right. 
Oh. People can talk to you and Danny say, but nobody can tell you you're not his mother. The one who gave birth to him, the one who nursed him, he'll know, you'll know. Mary Frances, you gotta tell him. You gotta tell him something. Please come home with me. I can't. Please. For Jimmy's sake. And then if you wanna leave, you tell him you have to go away forever, and then you can leave. I promise. Let me push you out. All right, that's enough. <sighs> so go home with this stranger. Pretend I'm his kid's dead mother. Look this kid in the eye and tell him he ha- I have to abandon him forever? No way she's going to go along with that, right, Chris? Well, I would. I would say that's actually the right thing to do, but it's not something you would agree to at midnight in a landfill. <laughs> You would want to. You would want to plan that out. I would think. But how is that maybe the a right Sunday thing to outing? Do? It's basically instead of saying uh, what he should have said to his son weeks, perhaps months ago. Your mother has passed away. Um, we're never going to see her again, but we'll always love her. Now he's trying to introduce his uh, quote-unquote mother back into his life, and she has to say goodbye. Yeah. I'm. I'm going to reserve my comments about that issue until the end. Okay, and um, uh, so can we go to 140? Okay. Which hopefully we're getting to soon. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. I know you hate this bit. <laughs> I don't hate this bit. It's you, a great you bit. Do. You're I not, just, you're but not I do a fan hate of these movies. You no, hate the movies. I, I love the bit. I hate the movies. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, uh, here we go. We're, we're almost through it, Chris. Carrot. Oh boy, creep zone. It has to happen. It's a made for TV movie. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't work this into the title. Yeah. Deadly Vengeance? <laughs> is this is that what is that what's happening? <laughs> Deadly Vengeance. <laughs> Hold on, folks. Here it comes. Oh, boy. Kaboom. Is that where we're... Oh, no. Oh, no? At what point did he unbutton her blouse? I don't remember that occurring. Uh, It might have been covert. He's a master. Yeah. Is he calling her lady? Yes, he's calling her lady. Now, okay, that's fine. That's fine, Jim. That's yes, very he's odd. calling her lady. It is very odd, <laughs> especially in a made-for-TV movie. It's very unique. Not only is it merely an attempted rape, 
But the attempted rape leads to the villain pulling a face turn. He calls her lady, and you realize, okay, he suddenly gets it that that's not his wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's very impressive. Um, so uh, can we go to the next clip? Now, this kid's name, hold on. This kid's name is Carrot. Oh, no, the kid's name is Tim. Okay. But I'm referring to him as Carrot because I'm learning Welsh. Well, now, because I know that, um, what was the lead singer of Led Zeppelin's name? Um, Robert Plant. Robert Plant. His son was named Carrick, like the ship, not Carrot. Are you sure you're not, uh, you sure about all this? (laughs) I am sure about all this, and I can tell you why if you're really interested. We might as well. Okay. Well, in the Welsh language, the word for carrot, the vegetable, right, is moron. Really? Yes. Is that where the word moron comes from? No. Okay. It's just a coincidence. Okay. All right. And also, Carrick is just a coincidence. That also. Robert Plant's uh, son's name. Okay. Also, also a coincidence. Gotcha. I assume. Because he was Welsh, I think. Because like some of Led Zeppelin's I lyrics are... I know they recorded in Wales. and Yeah. yeah. But also, um, the, the language spoken in uh, the Lord of the Rings books was based on Welsh. Right. Well, um, that's something I've learned in my lessons. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, by uh, the way, this is why I'm woefully unprepared this week. There's always some weird tangent I go in in life yeah. that makes me unprepared for the show. And um, this week, it's because I've begun to learn Welsh. Yeah. And I was about to go into a Tolkien thing. <laughs> but but let's let's stay focused and get back to the movie of the week of the week. <laughs> okay. He thinks she's his mother. Right. Of course he does. Yeah, she looks exactly like her. This is kind of sad. Until yeah. you realize it's ridiculous. Oh, the whole thing's ridiculous, but there's no way this did not scar this kid for life. Right. Now, what? stop. Okay. Well, that, no, there is a way. There is a way it wouldn't. Oh, yeah? Which is what, the point I waited to make. Like, come on, man. You can't be, you can't. This whole, the very beginning of this movie, the woman whose brain is now inside this body. Yeah. Was talking about. Come home and make love to me so we can have a baby. I want a baby. I want kids. Yeah. And that's you have a, here's a freaking kid. Raise him. Be a part of his life. <laughs> so you won't. Know, you won't. She she gave her body to you. You wouldn't be alive <laughs> if not for her. The least you could do is be a part of this kid's freaking life and pretend to be somebody she's not. Right. Well, no, you don't need to pretend. The kid will. Once the kid becomes an adult, he'll know what happened. But yeah, pretend for a little while the same way you pretend with Santa Claus, you know, you figure you'll figure it out. Be but a, she has to abandon be a part of this the life kid's she already life. has with her husband. No, she doesn't need to abandon anything. You can still mar- be married to the 
blonde dude oh, and still oh, be a part of this oh, kid's life. I see. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it. She you could, could be aunt whatever. Or, you know? step, or it could be stepdad. Like she's married to the blonde right, guy right, now. Right, right, right. You don't right. need to exit this kid's life entirely. It's a cruel, you're, you're messed also, up thing to do. You're also not entitled to. Yeah, you have an. Ob- that's what I'm saying. You have an obligation to this. No, no, no. Family, you're not. You're not obligated at all. The hell you aren't. You you got this person's body. That doesn't come without a price. <laughs> I'm on your side. I agree. Maybe she doesn't have to bang the dad, this guy. But I mean, she no. should. She should well, still be in the guy's in the in the son's life. I mean, I feel like she should have threw him a handy out of gratitude. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, come on. But uh, no, she's under no obligation to the father. But she does have an obligation to the child, I feel. Well, and, and even if it's not an obligation, it's the right thing to do. You, it's not like you hate children. Is it the right thing to do, though? I don't see why that's the right thing to do other than you feel obligated. It is the right thing to do, but not for this kid, because this kid is annoying. He's a carrot. I hate <laughs> this kid, and I've never said that about a kid in my life. I did not pick up on the hatred this that you This kid is so annoying. Have for this kid. He caused the entire yeah, incident. Doggy! And then... Well, I guess we're going to see it, right? Um, Is that what I have here? Uh, um, no, actually. Um, I do want to say this. Uh, my biggest problem, <laughs> my, <laughs> my biggest issue is uh, before she leaves, um, what's his name's house? I don't know. Uh, okay. Grease, Mike mo- from Grease Monkey? Hey, Grease Monkey. Yeah. Uh, why doesn't you say, oh, wait, before I leave, can I take this closet full of clothes that fit me perfectly <laughs> and you have no use for? <laughs> Because I just threw every stitch of threads I own in the in the landfill, and those don't fit me. Yet I have a feeling these ones will suit me just fine. Well, there was a scene where he tries to give her an old sweatshirt, and it says like Port Royal Speedway, and uh, like I don't know, she didn't own a, a nice jacket or coat or something that you could have. <laughs> that would have been a better choice than the oil-stained T-shirt or a sweatshirt you tried to give her. So uh, here's what happens next. Uh, here's how things end up uh don reports don the husband of julia reports her missing she goes home anyway feeling like her old self since the first time since the accident she reconciles with don and he goes back to solving mysteries with major dad now can i share with you the part that uh most annoyed the a-bomb okay okay please this is so early in the film the accident hasn't yet occurred mary francis takes her carrot of a son to the mall to see santa claus Let's watch this clip, and then once it's over, we'll see if you can uh, identify her beef. I got it. All right, all right, all right, all right. Any idea, Chris? Yeah, I think I got it. Um, I believe that the way that scene was shot, they were ripping off a Christmas story, the I'll Shoot Your Eye Out movie, by doing the zoom in on Santa in a horrifying, attempt at horrifying. Is that, is that, am I right about that? Well, let's hear if Jim has a guess. Do you have any guess as to why this scene annoyed the A-bomb? Because, well, I... In the be- is your getting into the scene, the kid, 
Well, I, I, I was trying to keep myself quiet because I feel like I was interrupting your show. The, uh, from what I seen in the beginning of that scene, the kid couldn't wait to go see Santa Claus. Then when he gets there, the kid doesn't want to, you know, he's scared all of a sudden. No. No, that's, that's a normal part of having a kid, Jim. That, that, that's the kind of thing will happen. Well, you're both wrong. Okay. Well, I'm not wrong about that. Uh, I'm wrong about the uh, Christmas story thing I said. Uh, yeah, you're wrong about uh, why this scene annoyed the A-bomb. Who calls it a cane? She oh. refers to a candy cane three times as a cane. <laughs> really? Yeah, could, let's, let's see. Could, let's again. watch it again. <laughs> and maybe this will annoy you too. All right, there's three. <laughs> Who says that? No, no one. No one I've ever heard ever. As Maybe a, that's something they say in Texas. But this is in L.A. No, but she moved from Texas with her grease monkey husband. That's true, yes. That's why she had the uh, Texas Speedway sweatshirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, any closing comments on... Yeah. Who is Julia? Yeah. I feel, wouldn't this have been a much better movie... If the brain transplant had gone the other way. <laughs> so the uh, let's just say average looking woman, her brain gets put into the body of this model. And then she goes home to her self-described grease monkey husband. <laughs> and all of a sudden he's dating a model <laughs> like now you got a fucking story, man. <laughs> That's on the other side of town. Uh, they film those movies <laughs> up in the up in the valley. <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they did remake this movie within the next few years, Chris. Um, Dude, this is ripe for a sequel. Who's Julia Part Two? Imagine where this story ends up ten years down the road. Did they end up having children? What happened to Carrot? What happened to Grease Monkey? You know, I mean, this. I don't know how this wasn't a uh, franchise. Well, I do have a feeling they will remake it, but not not do a sequel, not do an do an update, um, do a reboot. Oh, okay. Where Julia's brain is putting into a man's body, mm. but sent home as Julia, and her husband isn't really into it, and uh, he's shunned by society for his alleged transphobia. <laughs> That's the twenty twenty one version of this film. Yeah. I I can see that happening. So, Chris, anything we didn't talk about you might want to talk about? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we always try and serve the public good here. Oh, yes, yes. This is so very I, important. I do have a PSA that's, you know, sort of related to this. Uh, right. We like to address the issues are. that you've just seen in the film we've watched parts of. But uh, bef before we do that, is there anything, I, you know, is there anything you want to talk about? Oh, no, I'm good, Chris. All right. Well, then I guess we'll just, we'll just go right to that. Okay. Do you want me out of the shot? Or? What are we doing? No, yeah, we'll stop. Just do the whole show. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Just I, I got this gonna, I, yeah. All right, well, Chris, sit down. Sit down what? Well, we have to close the show so we can insert the PSA.
right. Well, in that case, uh, I hope you enjoyed tonight's program. And uh, if you want to check out uh, the uh, okay, right. I'm gonna. You're gonna cut that out, right? Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that stays in. <laughs> we'll have it on the sidelines <laughs> if you ever want it. Just leave it in. That could be a Patreon. Just leave all gimmick. this in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually gonna go over the gimmick with you when you're done. Okay. <laughs> thought of it during the show when you cracked open a beer. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, in that case, uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, Get Back. We hope you enjoyed uh, Is This Julia? Who is Julia? Julia's Choice. Oh, that, that'd be a... <laughs> okay. Do we have something picked out for next week? Uh, we don't. I, I don't have anything. I do have a list. I have a short list of films, but I don't have those with me. All right. Can we put them a? Can we put up a poll on Monday? Well, we could. Yeah, but it will be embarrassing when nobody responds. Yeah, it'll be. It'll be. Yeah. Uh, I don't want. Yeah. I don't want to ask questions on the Facebook page or any sort of uh, because uh, I mean it's just horrendously embarrassing. It's a tree falling in the forest when no one's there. Not that people aren't watching, and we appreciate the people who are. Yes, thank you. And I don't want to take um, the the people who aren't watching out on the people who are. You know what I mean? It's. Uh, I get it. Yeah. So Thank you for your support. You. We appreciate we appreciate <laughs> it all, but uh, do us a favor and tell your friends. <laughs> or two. <laughs> all right, in that case, uh, thanks so much for putting up with us. I'm Steve Reese for Chris Morgani. And uh, Hamboy, Askiwiwi. Askiwawa. Holy Mackinac. Ziggy Zaki. He hit him raw. <laughs> we did it. Finals against the Argos on Sunday.